as the summer months usually bring with it, vacations, people going away. It's been my pattern through the years to take a summer break from the regular expositions in God's Word that we're doing at any time um, to do something a bit different. And I've determined I would do that again this year. And so we're going to take uh, a break until September from our studies in the book of John. And what I purpose to do is to focus our attention during the months of July and August. I'll be here four weeks in July. I'll be here four weeks in August. I'll be away one week at Inglewood and um, the uh, next to the last week in, uh, in July. So it gives me eight messages to preach. And so uh, I decided I would take the subject of the Beatitudes, uh, that portion of God's Word found in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 2. Uh, I believe it's to verse... Let me just make sure. Matthew chapter 2. This is the ground we hope to cover over the summer months. Matthew chapter 5. And well, verse verse 3 to verse 9. Now the name Beatitude is simply Latin uh, for the word that is written in our Bibles as blessed. It's a translation of the Greek word makarios, and it's a word that simply means happy or fortunate or being well off in a good state, in a good condition. Humankind is made for blessedness. No sooner did God create male and female in his own image and likeness than we read in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, and God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And while the human race remained faithful to its creator God, when they fulfilled his word, his mandate, in loving obedience to him, happiness did belong to the very existence of human beings. It's not creation that brings misery and death. It's sin that brings misery and death. But even in sin, we've not lost our memory for happiness. We've not lost our desire for blessedness. It's a thing that all people everywhere seek. But it's a thing that people everywhere seek, sadly, in all the wrong ways and in all the wrong places. But when the Savior of sinners comes into the world, the very first words in the very first sermon recorded in Matthew's Gospel is a word about happiness, about blessedness. And Jesus is not uncertain or secretive about where to find it. This morning we're going to seek to set the stage for our studies in these first seven statements beginning with the word blessed blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are those who mourn blessed are the meek blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness blessed are the merciful blessed are the pure in heart 
Blessed are the peacemakers. And then next to every one of these statements about who it is in this world who is truly happy, who has found real happiness, is the reason that happiness exists. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called the sons of God. There is an eighth blessed. Actually, there's a ninth blessed as well. Verse 10 and 11 also begin with the word blessed. But really, it's a movement really away from these first seven. Where these first seven have as their focus the character of the blessed. What makes them blessed in terms of their character. The eighth and the ninth deal with their condition in relationship to the wider culture. How the culture sees them. How the culture persecutes them. And the consolation that the persecuted church of God can have as they seek to live out the graces of the Christian life, seek to develop the character of godliness, that we have consolation even when the world turns on us for our very character, even when the world hates us because we're people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because we're people that in our core have become so unlike the priorities and the wisdom and the pursuits of this present evil age that we have a, a radical countercultural viewpoint and perspective and lifestyle. They will persecute us for these things, and yet we can be filled with consolation. But it's the first seven that deal with the basic character for which persecution comes. It deals with the basic graces that come within the Christian life by the grace of the gospel, by the power of the living God that make us as God's people what we are. And it's those things I want to center our thoughts upon over the course of these summer weeks. I want to set the stage for these subsequent studies by looking at these Beatitudes. First of all, as that they are opening words of a larger sermon. We want to see them in the context of the larger sermon, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And then we want to see them, not only in terms of these there being opening words of the Sermon on the Mount, but to see them in their Old Testament perspective, or the Old Testament background that feeds into these ideas and concepts, and feeds in to these words of Jesus. And then finally, I want us to look this morning at the outline of these Beatitudes, how they're shaped, how they're formed, um, how these seven statements of blessedness relate to one another as they're set out for us in terms of these seven statements of the Lord Jesus. So, so let's begin with the fact that these seven words spoken by Jesus from the mountain are the opening words of the Sermon on the Mount. And it brings us to confront the question, what is this sermon? What is its theme? Why is it here at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel? You know, it's a question that does, sadly doesn't often get answered. It's a question that people just assume 
that they think they know the answer. Because I was mentioning in Sunday school that you know, I was uh, 17 years of age when I first read the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I didn't uh, go to church. I wasn't raised in a church. I had no frame of reference to Jesus and these words that he spoke. And when I first read them, I was just astounded at most every statement that um, um, he made. And uh, I remain astounded, but I remain astounded principally because I've tried to in every reading of the Sermon on the Mount, and every time I've had the opportunity to teach on it in a public setting, uh, I've tried to see it more and more in the fuller context of Matthew's Gospel and to come to, come to terms with what this theme is that Jesus is, is centering these words upon. In the past, I've always thought that the, ref, the point of, of reference most probably... Uh, uh, centering uh, 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 upon the theme of the message. In fact, I think I've taught this in the past. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've heard this before. When I probably have said before, probably in your hearing, that the theme passage of the Sermon on the Mount is chapter 5 and verse 20, where Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, certainly that's a theme that does feed into the things that follow, but I don't think it's necessarily the theme of the sermon. I think one of the reasons I thought it might be the theme of the sermon is that it puts together the thought of righteousness and kingdom of heaven. And my idea was, well, this theme of the sermon is the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. And it's hard to deny that it's righteousness that is the theme of this message. It comes at us over and over and over again. And yet, the kingdom of heaven is something that we should see not as some realm that people inhabit, but as something that is ruled over and reigned over by Jesus himself. The word basileia, the Greek word that's translated kingdom, is actually a word that could speak not only of a realm like the kingdom of Great Britain or the kingdom of Denmark or the kingdom of some other place, but it's a word that speaks of the reign, a one who rules who is the king? It can be translated the kingship of God. Jesus comes as the incarnate king of Israel. The wise men ask the question, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Jesus is presented in Matthew's gospel as the king. He said to be the son of David, right off the bat, when you read the very first verse of the of, of the um, of the gospel. He's son of David, even before he's son of Abraham. Who was David? Well, David was the king. And then as you've been taught before, you have a series of genealogies that center upon David the king. Fourteen generations to David the king. Fourteen generations after David the king when you had Davidic kings that ruled in Israel. Fourteen generations with no Davidic king until Jesus comes on the scene. The successor to the throne of his father David. He is the Davidic king who's come to reign in Israel. And he's come to reign in Israel as the incarnate God. He's called Emmanuel in chapter 1. And he's come also as the incarnate king to in his own self replicate Israel's own experience. It's interesting how Matthew does this. He sets out the fact that as a result of Jesus' death, there was a king in, Ju in, in Judah, a rival king named Herod. And what did King Herod do when the wise men came and said, where is he who was born the king of the Jews? 
Well, he put to death the babies in Bethlehem. What king did that before? Well, Pharaoh. Pharaoh being threatened by the rise, the growing number of Israelites being fruitful and multiplying by the blessing of God, sought to put the death of the firstborn sons of the Israelites to death. Thankfully, he had some godly midwives that wouldn't be compliant with this. Thankfully, the parents of Moses put him in the Nile rather than allow Herod's purposes to be fulfilled. But you have a king like Herod, uh, like Pharaoh, that, that sought to persecute Jesus. See, he saw Jesus as a, a threat to his throne. And so what happens? Joseph and Mary are told to go down into Egypt. Egypt was the place of their persecution, now becomes the place of safety. And it becomes the place of safety so that when Herod dies and his son Archelaus takes over as the king, God sent a messenger to Joseph and says, he's dead. It's okay to come back. So that the prophecy of Hosea would be fulfilled that said, what, out of Egypt I've called my son. No, Hosea, that's talking about Israel. God's redeeming Israel from slavery in Egypt. But Jesus comes out of Egypt like Israel did. Jesus is persecuted like Israel was. Jesus comes out of Egypt like Israel was. And then Jesus comes to the river to be baptized by John in the Jordan. Just like Israel came to the Red Sea and later to the Jordan River. And then having come through the sea, what does he do? He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. The temptations in the wilderness. Exactly paralleling the 40 40 days of being tempted in the wilderness. Paralleling 40 years of Israel being tempted in the wilderness in the Old Testament. And so so Jesus comes to replicate this experience of Israel because he's the true Israelite. He's the king of of, of the Jews. He's the incarnate God who's Emmanuel, God with us, and he replicates the experience of the nation. What happens when Israel came through the wilderness? Well, ultimately they came to a mountain, didn't they? They came to a mountain. What does Jesus do? Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Israel was a crowd that met God at Sinai. These crowds meet the incarnate Son of God as he ascends this mountain sits down, calls his disciples to him, and Jesus begins to speak. In a real sense, Israel received the law from God out of God's own very mouth. The God who spoke the words of the Ten Commandments, saying, I am the Lord your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Have no other gods before me. Is the same God who now speaks from another mountain. He opens his, vo- his, his, his mouth and he taught them saying. So the Sermon on the Mount is the king's law. It's Israel's king coming to teach God's people, God's ways, God's law. It's the God of Israel who speaks from the mountain. This is why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7 and verse 28, we read the crowds were astonished at his teaching. 
For he was teaching as one who had authority. And it's not just the authority of a notable teacher. It's not just the authority of a great prophet. It's the authority of the one who said, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, I'm the Lord. Everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's not just a title of respect there. It's a title of deity. He's Yahweh in in flesh. He's Emmanuel. On that day, he says, many will say to me, one day, on the judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not done these things in your name? He's the Lord of glory in flesh. Come to dwell among us, that we could behold his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is no one less than Israel's God and King. This is his law, his words, his precepts, his prescription for a life of blessedness. As we go through these studies this summer, let's not forget who it is who speaks. But there's not only an understanding that these words come in the frame of the Sermon on the Mount itself as its opening words, but then it's important to see also the Old Testament background to these words. More than any of the Gospels, Matthew is most insistent upon reminding his readers openly and overtly of the rich Old Testament background that informs the life and teaching of Jesus. I think no less than a dozen times in his Gospel, he uses this formula that this occurred, or this was said, or this was done, that the words spoken by the prophet saying might be fulfilled. Now, Jesus is the one who comes to fulfill the words of the prophet, the prophetic word, the words of expectation given to us in the Old Testament scriptures. And we find in the Beatitudes, clearly there is the Old Testament background that's pronounced. It's, it's not opaque, it's clear, it's really there. For the third of the Beatitudes is a direct reference to Psalm 37 and verse 11. The meek shall inherit the land. The land being the earth. Canaan is typical of the land. The land grant that God gave is an inheritance. God's into giving land grants. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But he gives the earth to his image bearers. And we should subdue it. We should have dominion over it. Not to deplete it of its resources, not to exploit it for our own benefit, but to serve God and, 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 and maintain a stewardship of the earth that would honor him and glorify him as well as bless others. It's man to man that's given the earth. And yet through sin, they forfeited the garden, didn't they? They forfeited the ownership of the land in a real sense. They forfeited dominion over the creatures. You don't believe me? Just go into the midst of a pack of lions and tell them to stand down. Now they won't. They won't. They'll say, Christian? Yeah, dinner. That's what they'll do. 
Because we don't have that same relationship because of sin. We don't have that same relationship to God. We don't have the same relationship to the animal kingdom. We don't have that same relationship to the earth. Yet Jesus comes to restore the blessings. The meek shall inherit the earth. Delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Jesus, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The new heavens and the new earth, in which righteousness dwells, belongs to a multitude that no man can number from every kindred, tongue, and tribe who have this in common. They're redeemed. They're redeemed. Christ has purchased them, made them his own, and restored the image of God, and the knowledge of God, and the love of God, and the desire for God, and obedience to God. In other words, he's come in the midst of the world that is cursed to bring back the blessing, to bring back back a state of blessedness. And these beatitudes, these blessed are, is the reflection of that work of Christ that brings the blessing. And again, the Old Testament is filled with this sort of stuff. Think of the book of the Psalms. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. And so the book of the Psalms begins. Psalm 2 Blessed they are who take refuge in him. Psalm 37. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one to whom God will not reckon iniquity. But they're not the only blessings in the Old Testament found in the Psalms. And they're not the only blessings spoken from mountains. You know, there's the Old Testament blessing spoken from mountains. Should we not take note of that? Well, it seems to me you have in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Let's turn there briefly. Deuteronomy chapter 11. I'm in chapter 8. Why am I in chapter 8? I don't know. It's in in verse 29. Let's get back up to 26. See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of Yahweh your God, but turn aside from the way I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And when Yahweh your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on what? (laughs) Mount Gerizim. It's a blessing that's going to be on a mountain, Mount Gerizim, and the curse on Mount Ebal. Now, when they entered into the land, one of the principal places of importance was a place called Shechem. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was established when they entered into the land. And this city of Shechem, you know where it lay? It lay between two mountains. On one side there was Mount Gerizim, the other side was Mount Ebal. And when they entered into the land of promise, this is what was going to happen. Six of the tribes were to stand upon Mount Gerizim, and they were to pronounce the blessings. 
six other, the other tribes were to stand on the Mount um, Ebal and the curses were to be pronounced. So when you look at how it all played out in chapter 27 of Deuteronomy, I'm not going to go into it with you. Just write it down. Look at it later. Chapter 27 of the book of Deuteronomy. Again, God repeats the blessings are to be spoken from Gerizim, the curses from Ebal, and then God goes on to pronounce the curses like 12 of them in number. No blessings at all. No blessings at all. Curse after curse after curse after curse. And then you read 28 of the book of Deuteronomy, and curses and blessings are again mentioned, and the curses and the blessings are like 15 verses, and the curses are like 45 verses. It's almost as if God's saying in Israel, you've not kept my commandments, I don't expect that you will. This is a people hard of heart, stiff of neck. These are people that will turn away easily to idolatry. God knew what was going to happen. And that the curse of the covenant far more readily will happen, at least to the nation at large. But yet there's to be blessings that are spoken from a mountain that somewhere or another is going to light upon people who will be genuinely blessed. And Jesus, when he comes in the flesh, he ascends the mountain. I don't know if it was Mount Gerizim. That was in Samaria. Probably not. Remember the Samaritans worshipped on that, their mountain. That was Mount Gerizim. And that's why they put their temple there. They thought that's a temple of blessing. Good place to put a temple where the blessings were to be spoken. But Jesus ascends this mountain and there's no mention of a curse. Only blessing. Again, he speaks to his disciples and you see, when you're a disciple of the Lamb, when you're following Him, when you're learning from Him, when you're attached to Him, you know what you find in Him? Blessing unmixed. No curses allowed because Jesus is the one who's taken, taken the curse for us. Jesus is the one who is the curse bearer. He's taken it away. In the death that He dies, there will be no curse, no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And so we need to see this act of Jesus going upon this mountain as the ascending the mountain of blessing that Israel could never have fulfilled because of their apostasies, because of their rebellion, because of their idolatry. But yet Jesus has come not just to give a law outwardly on tables of stone. He's come to bring a law that through the power of God's grace and the power of a new birth will be written upon our hearts. And so when we come to faith in Jesus, it says as a people aligned with him who comes to bring the blessings. He's come to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. No curse remains, only the blessings. And so on this mountain, Israel's incarnate God and King exclusively heralds the blessings he has come to bring. Well, the words themselves have a relationship to one another. It can be outlined, and it can be outlined principally in this way. Now, some of you know, you've heard it from me before, that many times, not always, but I think many times, when the Bible lists things together with odd numbers, it does so so that our eyes would be centered upon the middle one. In other words, you have seven mentions, seven things that are blessed here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those that mourn, blessed are the meek. 
The fourth one is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's three that precede right, that, right? There's three that precede it, and then there's three that follow it. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. And many times when seven things are listed like this, it's to show that the center, that the middle thing is the central thing. The middle thing is the heart of the matter. And there are things that lead to it, and there are things that flow from that middle thing. And I think that's how the Beatitudes are to be understood. Jesus comes to bring blessing. The blessings, remember, a creation was to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. It was agricultural language. God's people are to be a fruitful people. We're to be a people who are rooted and grounded in the truth. We are a people who are to know uh, the fruit of the Spirit. And I really think these first three are the matters of the root of the blessing. How do you get it? How do you come to the place of obtaining the blessings of heaven? Well, the first three outline the path that leads to it, or the things that it's rooted in. I meant to look it up, how deep go the roots of the sequoia trees of California. How deep are the roots of the redwoods? I would imagine they're pretty deep. I imagine to have a tree that big, that high, you got to have roots that are deeply planted and rooted. I imagine when you build a skyscraper in Manhattan, you got to dig the foundation deep. And again, I don't know how deep they go to build those foundations, but you can't, you can't just put it you know, in the field here, a skyscraper. you got to dig deep for the skyscraper to stand. And God does the work of digging deep into the hearts and lives of his people. If we're going to be a people that grow, a people of stature, a people of blessings that are in any way significant at all, the first notes that are sounded in this whole symphony of blessings have to be the, the base ones. It has to be the, the negative ones. Because you see, we have to come to the place of recognition. We cannot save ourselves. There's nothing in us that's of worth or goodness that could ever come to God. We're paupers. We, get, we have nothing. We're poor in spirit. We've got to come to that place. We're filled with pride. We're filled with self-centeredness. We're filled with the sense of our own strength and ability. It's not the mark of the righteous. God begins to dig deep. Before we get any comfort, we have to find discomfort. We have to find a sense of affliction. We have to find a sense of the recognition that I, I'm not able to save myself. I have nothing to give to God. Nothing to bring to God. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Is one of the great songs of the faith. God must supply everything. Because I'm a beggar in total need. So God sounds these first three notes of poverty of spirit. And again, it's not a question of what's in your pocketbook. It's not what's in your retirement account. It's what's in your heart. It's what's in your heart. There's the poverty of spirit, the recognition of who and what I am before God and of my destituteness and my neediness before Him. Lord, I need You. I can't do it myself. I can't save myself. I need You. 
I need your grace. I need your salvation. That comes first and that comes foremost. And when God comes and humbles us and God comes and produces poverty of spirit, it brings us to shed real tears of repentance and real tears of remorse. And when God makes us meek so that we're not so filled with ourselves that we're always lashing out, defying God with our fists towards heaven, saying, this is unfair, God. Why did you do this to me? We come to take our place of submitting before Him. That's what meekness does. Meekness submits to the God, to the God of heaven and earth. And we're not filled with enmity and bitterness. So we're just lashing out at other people. You're in my way. No. There's an absence of hostility to God and hostility to others. That's the essence of what meekness is and what meekness does. And folks, those things are in the heart. I know God said that Moses was the meekest man upon the earth. God knew it. If you knew Moses, you would never know it. I mean, you probably could see that he has not a vindictive ounce of of anything in his whole in his whole being, but it's all, it's something known to God and known to the human heart, and so that's where it begins. It begins inwardly, inwardly, and then it moves to the heart of the thing itself. When we come to see we have nothing, we need everything. What do we do? We hunger for what we need. We thirst for what we need. And what do we need? We need righteousness. We need righteousness. We need right standing with God. We need right living before God. We need righteousness that only God can supply. And so those first three things bring us to hunger and thirst, showing us our emptiness. We'll never seek for righteousness if we're satisfied with ourselves. We'll never seek for righteousness if we think we have it all within our own selves. No. It's when we're unhappy with ourselves and dissatisfied with ourselves. We know self-will, self-trust, self-pleasing, self-righteousness is, 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 is not happiness. It's misery. Any of those things and all of those things. Then we'll seek the true happiness that comes from righteousness in God. And then the result of that, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, you know what it leads to? The fruits of righteousness. The fruits of a happy life. Where we're not absorbed with ourselves. Purity of heart is single-mindedness with God, towards God. Our hearts are united to fear His name. There's no admixture. There's no other elements. There's no... There's a singular desire to seek Him, to pursue Him, to please Him. It's not only single-mindedness, there's a tender-heartedness. As God has had mercy to us, that we show mercy to others. That we show mercy to others. And that not only single-mindedness and tender-heartedness is a yearning to see reconciliation. Reconciliation with God through the blood of the cross. Reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ. Coming to the place of being an active agent of God's peace. 
A ministry of reconciliation, Paul says, is what he received from, from God. And we are to be agents of reconciliation, agents of peace, peacemaking. Again, not some superficial peace, not just the ending of hostility, but the actual conferring of the blessing of peace. There's, a, there's the fruits of, of, of well-being, of genuine prosperity that comes from knowing God and being, being united to God and united to others through Christ. Those things you see. Those things you see. You see mercy. You see purity. You see peaceableness. Those are the fruits. It's not just the stuff that's under the surface. It's only in the heart. That's the great sequoias, the redwoods. God's people are to be like that. We're to be giants in the way of the pursuit of righteousness, but we'll never grow very large if we're not concerned for the first three. The first three that dig deep, that produce in us that hunger that leads to the fruit of the, of the final three. And that's the approach we're going to take. That's how we're going to look at these things. That's the outline of these words. It moves from the fruit I'm sorry, from the root to the fruit. (laughs) And it goes from the heart to the outer life as we live among others with the fruits of righteousness being shown forth to the praise of God and for the good of others. As we conclude this morning, let me say a word about the way we approach the world with the gospel. I know it's an easy thing to come with a formula that we've been taught in an evangelism class that is like one size fits all. And we just come to people and say, well, you know, you're going to die. You're going to stand before God in judgment. Uh, what are you going to say to him when, when you die? And I'm not saying that's not a good question to ask people. That's a fine question to ask people. But you know, it's not the thing that people in the streets are asking themselves. It's not something, I mean, that's not really where, 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 what they're thinking. I mean, you can try to get them to think that way, but it's probably not what they're thinking. But you know what everybody's thinking about? Everybody's thinking about being happy. Even people that are filled with depressed, depression, makes them happy to be depressed. That's the way they're happy. Just to feel glum and to feel moody and to feel depressed. It's not a natural thing. It's not a normal thing. It's, but it's... I just prefer to be alone. I prefer to be left alone. I prefer... People want strange ways to be happy. What's the problem? They're looking for happiness in all the wrong places. And one of the things we can really do when we talk to people is to ask them this question. And the things that you're seeking and pursuing in your life, and you think they're important, and the things that you want, you know, self-expression and um, finding happiness in this thing or that thing or the next thing, your career, in prosperity, and in, in money, and all the myriads of idols that people make for themselves, just to ask themselves, to ask them, has, has your idols made you happy? Has your idols made you happy? They say they'll make you happy, but do they? 
as one is in the business of bringing genuine happiness, genuine blessedness, genuine restoration of of the purposes for which humanity has come to exist. And that's Jesus. Jesus' first words are words that speak to the issue. Address the concerns that people have. They want to be happy. But they're not because they're not seeking it in Jesus' way. And I think that's a wonderful way to talk to people about the gospel. Jesus comes from the glory he had with the Father from the foundation of the world into a world of misery, into a world under a curse, into a world of sin. And though you put up a great front, the reality is when you're alone with your own heart, you know you're not fulfilled, you know you're not living a life that you could be living, but Jesus is in the business of turning a life of usefulness and of disappointment and self-loathing and self-will and, and all the things that people pursue in this life, seeking happiness in all the wrong places. And as the incarnate king, he comes to tell us, here's where it's to be found. Here is where it's to be found. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If any man thirsts, let him come to me. And out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Jesus comes to make his people happy. Let's tell that to the world. And more than that, let's show the world. There's a sense in which, you know, we're not hedonists, but then John Piper said we should be. He says we should be. He has this whole idea about Christian hedonism, the pleasure principle that really we have in Jesus. We sing it in the words of Newton's hymn, Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but science children know. The world's treasures, the world's pleasures, the things that the world seeks will always lead to misery and disappointment. Jesus does not disappoint. Again, I spoke about talking to a woman that sat in front of me at the concert that I attended. And she told me about one disappointment after another with people in the church and how this thing happened and that thing happened. And I listened and I said, you know, I really feel bad for you. And I'm sorry that Christians treated you that way. But don't judge Christianity by how Christians treat you. Because they may not represent Christ truly and accurately. And in fact, if they've treated you that way, that's not the way Jesus treats you. That's not the way he'll ever treat you. So don't judge Jesus by his people. Judge Jesus on his own terms. But Christians have to live in the light of that reality ourselves. If we're filled with misery and disappointment, then we're always carping and complaining. We're not being sons of God in the midst of the darkness of this present evil age. That's what Paul says, do everything without murmuring and complaining. Why? Because that's what the world does. The world moans and groans and complains and is unhappy and dissatisfied. Christian, you should not be. And if you're filled with moans and groans and complaints and little of the joy of the Holy Spirit, little of a sense of satisfaction and peace and believing, you need to ask yourself why. 
That's certainly not what Jesus Christ saved you for. He saved you that in me you might have peace. In the world you have tribulation, he says, but in me you have peace. And maybe the problem is you're not properly relating to, relating to him. You're so filled with the stuff of this world. You're pursuing its amusements and you're pursuing its interests and insufficiently pursuing the interests of Christ. I think if we all resolve to put the devices away for a week, to stop immersing ourselves in the politics of the world, stop immersing ourselves in all of the complaints of the world and the anger of other people, and just begin to feed upon Christ and His fullness, we get back a little bit of what Jesus designs for us when He speaks to His disciples and opens His mouth and teaches them and says, Here is the way of happiness. May God be pleased to bless his word to us and bless us as we study the path to happiness and the fruits of happiness as we study the Beatitudes together this summer. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the joy that we have in Jesus, the wonder of grace that has been extended to us. And yet we all confess that to one degree or another, we've just not appreciated all that we do have in him. We so easily allow the things of the world, its own expectations, its own pursuits, to so fill our hearts with the incipient idols that we pursue instead of the one who liberates and frees and gives peace and joy in believing. We pray we would be restored to our birthright as the children of God to know the the joys of so great a salvation that we would know the solid joys and the lasting treasures that none but Zion's children know. So bless us as we study your word this summer. Help us, Lord, to be a people that will come to the end of this study more filled with the joy and peace and believing that does belong to the saints of the living God. Hear our prayers as we ask these things. In Jesus' name, amen.